0: Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Thank you for checking out another edition of the Open Trailer Podcast. My name's Andy Austin, and over the next two episodes, we're going to pack up the studio, head to Down East Maine, and visit with the Alexander family. What I found fascinating about the Alexanders is that they each brought a specific skill set to the family. Bob was the trailblazer. Matter of fact, his racing predates fire suits. We'll get into that. Also, the fact that it was so dusty one day, they threw the red flag, didn't stop anybody from racing. Matter of fact, Bob won the race. We'll also check in with the Hall of Famer's son, Brett, who had a very brief driving career. That was one of the things I was most curious about when visiting with the family, because I could find things on Bob, find things on Wyatt, but what about Brett's career? If you don't know much about it, there's a reason, and we get into that. This podcast directly benefits the Maine Vintage Race Car Association. MVRCA preserves the history of racing in the state of Maine. There are a number of different ways you can support our mission. The most important is to become a member. Mainvintagerace.org. That's mainvintagerace.org. Memberships are less than $2 a month. Racing's a family sport, so get your family involved for $25 a year multi-year memberships and lifetime memberships that's right we'll sign you up for your entire life to be a member of the main vintage race car association so let's fire up stage number one with the alexander family you probably know a lot about one generation but there are three and let's fill you in on the other two enjoy So the Alexanders are here today, three generations, and a lot of our guests are Southern Maine-related, but I wanted to get someone from the county. You know, everybody hears about Spud Speedway. Spud Speedway, for some people, only is, an, like, it's an illusion. You know, one of the people that uh, that really succeeded at the Speedway, uh, you know, during its heyday, was uh, Bob Alexander, who's a 2014 Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame member and the patriarch, really, of the Alexander Racing... Um, Enterprise, really. And I always like to hear where people came from.
1: Of course, I grew up on a farm. And being a potato farmer, dairy farmer, we did our own repairs. So from a young age, I was welding and I was building engines and and doing what needed to be done out of necessity Mm. because we just didn't have the funds to to hire things done. And I recall on a camping trip when I was probably 11, 12 years old, finding an old cut-down coop might have been a 37 ford in the woods and told my father i says i want to take that race car home i want Mm -hmm. to race one of those someday father just chuckled and said yeah sure that's never going to happen so i had to prove him wrong and and the fact that i was i was a run i mean let's face it I, Mm -hmm. i was the smallest guy in the litter but uh so i made up for my lack of athletic prowess and i didn't play baseball or basketball like everyone else but man i could tune an engine and and i could i could uh, work on everybody else's uh, street cars and uh, so i i took that uh, talent that niche and uh, leveraged it into building race cars how big was your family i was the oldest of seven uh, there were five boys and two girls hmm and a uh, big farm at the time it was one of the bigger farms but
0: what what town was
1: that in that was in east blaine that was right wow. on the canadian border i could almost saw a rock and hit canada Did you ever try uh <laughs> my arm wasn't that good
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, how many people lived in
1: that town oh goodness for the town of east blaine maybe
0: 200 Wow, <laughs> so, small um what was there to do up there for recreation for fun what would families do we never lacked for something
1: to do. We were at the the foot of the Marseille Mountain. We skied every winter. We worked at the mountain to uh, to pay for our lift tickets. We would work on the, the equipment, work on the uh, lifts, things mm. like that, and uh, groom trails. Uh, this would be in, in our high school years. You know, when we were 14, 15, 16 years old. But mm. prior to that, you know, we'd hunt and fish and and uh, go skiing. Cross-country skiing, snowshoeing.
0: Was Spud the first speedway that you ever went to?
1: uh, No. No, it actually wasn't. West Springfield at the Eastern States Exposition used to be a racetrack there. I think it was like a quarter-mile asphalt track. Massachusetts? Massachusetts. So in high school, I was uh, in FFA, Future Farmers of America, and we uh, competed at the Eastern States Expo, and there was a modified race. And I was hooked from that point on.
0: So you mentioned you're in the future Farmers of America. Um, at that point in your life, that's what you imagined your life would be. You were going to pick up the family farm? Pretty much, pretty much. Uh,
1: uh, I, uh, you know, being from a farm background, everything we did in high school was geared towards, you know, tractors and equipment and, uh, you know, uh, agronomy and raising potatoes and mm. and uh, husbandry, taking care of animals and animals. Right.
0: So where did racing come in? Was it right after you went to Springfield and you realized there was something going on in in your part of the world?
1: Well, it was after college. uh, I graduated from UMaine in '68 and started helping a a local racer on his car get his cars ready. And he might decide to go do other things for a while. And I was left with the responsibility of...
0: uh, um, doing the setups and and so you had to and, get the car to the racetrack and he was just going to show up with a helmet pretty well, much did you wear helmets back then oh yeah okay yeah. want make we sure
1: we did not have fire suits no. uh, per se I, I probably i was one of the first to wear a real fire suit right uh in in the 70s and uh that was my one fear in racing was getting burned mm. i had no no uh, concern about being injured uh, you know in accidents or anything like that but mm. fire fire scared me
0: tell me about the first time that you saw the car that you prepared do really well
1: well we we were one of the top two or three cars at the time at spud it was the the uh, the sportsman's class which was similar to what was being run at unity or speedway 95 or beach ridge it was uh, you know 50s and
0: 60s tell me that you owned a 57 chevy i did yes. own a 1957 chevy every person from your generation that has been on this podcast <laughs> is like well I started with a 57 chevy what was it about that car that made things just so slick
1: well it was it was cheap uh, it was either a 57 chevy or a 56 ford Uh, pretty much you could go out behind anybody's barn and and find one sitting in the weeds and uh, Mm. pull an engine and uh, nobody really did much to the engines back then Uh, it was uh, uh, run what you brung and uh, uh, very minimal rules Mm. and uh, so your your ingenuity
0: went a long ways and uh, so you're interested in farming or are you really interested in farming?
1: That wasn't a big priority. My father always said that if, if any of us wanted to go farming, he was going to boot us in the butt and mm-hmm. make sure we didn't. Right. Uh,
0: but uh, you're, you're you're a gearhead. You love you know working on stuff on the farm, and you you know the race car is doing really well. Uh, at what point do you say I really need to drive one of these things?
1: Yeah, that was probably a couple of years in after working with Eddie. Eddie Gilman's is the, who I started with, and uh, decided that. Uh, Hey, why not have my own car? I was uh, financially able to do it at that Mm. point. Of course, cars are much cheaper, so I bought a car that had been campaigned. uh, uh, Don Barnes decided to retire it, and
0: he had the 96, and uh, so I just carried on with the 96. So throughout three generations of Alexanders, everyone's had the '96. And I, I wondered if it came from you, Bob, but it really just came from the fact that it was already on the car. It was convenient.
1: Uh, we had a group of racers. Like, every area seems to have a cluster of races, mm. racers. Uh, and in Mars Hill, there were 8 or 10 uh, people that raced at either at Spide or over in Canada, at, at uh, uh, Dirt Track in Canada. And they all started out with the 90s, the 93, 4, 5, really? 96. So we all mm. had that little uh, niche of numbers the 99s and
0: what was it like the first time you drove well (laughs) uh
1: standing in the track getting ready to line up drivers were standing around waiting for introductions and chink maynard was the track champ at the time and Mm. i told chink man i said my mouth gets dry in the races well here he says have a stick of chewing gum he says that's what i do i take a i chew gum while i while i race i said oh that's great so i took a stick of gum went out and we come around the parade lap and they drop the green flag and I swallowed the gum.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what <laughs> I would be worried that it was going to get stuck in your throat or something. Yeah,
1: so we were pretty fortunate that by buying a car that was already set up, it mm. eliminates, I always recommend to people, don't build your own car, your first car, buy a car.
0: Which blows my mind because one of your, um, I think one of your best attributes is, to the success early on was the fact that uh, you had a completely different background and a different mindset than a lot of the racers at the time and that had to do with the engineering
1: true true i was always looking for that mechanical edge uh, that would give me an advantage and uh, back then nobody worried about being lightweight Mm. so i was cutting weight out of the car and, and stripping that down and Knowing that taking out weight was the same as adding horsepower, mm. so uh, like yeah, if they af- were going
0: to give you a cubic inch rule, right? right. Where did you get
1: these ideas? Uh, reading, I read everything I could get my hands on. You couldn't stock a racing magazine. Circle Track magazine was was big at the time, the seventies mm. and eighties, and uh, so anything engineering textbooks and things mm. like that to to understand why something worked. And how old were you at,
0: at this time? In my early 20s. Was racing how you put food on the table or were you doing something else and trying to develop a career? There was a period of time that
1: uh, I had been laid off from uh, the telephone company where I was working and I went to work as a, a mechanic, and one whole I think one year, two years, I, I built cars, built engines, did setups, and that's how. And I depended on my purse money to, to live.
0: So was, how did you come from the county down to press uh, down to Ellsworth? Well,
1: I decided that uh, I needed to make a change and uh, needed more money because mm. race cars cost money. Oh boy! So the better job I had, the better race car I could have. I learned about an opportunity to be a Snap-on Tools dealer oh and uh they had an opening in lewiston for a dealer and uh, so in the process of getting financing i didn't have a lot of assets at the time uh that position got filled and they said well we have an a territory in ellsworth are you interested in coming to ellsworth i said well yes i am mm. where is ellsworth All right. <laughs> christmas of uh 79 we moved to ellsworth and mm. found a place to live and-
0: Well, we're skipping ahead to 79. Uh, Throughout the late 60s, early 70s, you have a ton of success up at Spud Speedway. Did you race anywhere? Did you race in Canada? I did. We raced in Canada. We raced in Fredericton. Uh, Tried to go
1: to Nova Scotia one time. Got rained out. The track was closed for a period of time, and we actually started traveling. And we would travel to uh, Speedway 95 and Unity. So we'd race Saturday night in Unity, camp out in the parking lot and uh, with a tent go to Speedway 95 on Sunday and then back home to work the rest of the week.
0: How many times did you have to spend the entire night rebuilding your car or retooling it for Speedway 95 as opposed to finishing up at Unity?
1: It would be the exception that we didn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> and,
0: uh, there was times where
1: we would... Uh, a couple of times we had raced it at, at spud and come to a race at unity where at spud we had to run a uh, a closed rear end nine inch forward no floaters or anything like that mm-hmm. whereas and no slicks whereas at unity we could add 10 inch slicks uh, full floating rear ends so we had uh come up with a setup with this uh i had a 69 chevelle i'd built it was a truck arm car so it was real easy to change the differential in it so we had a second differential already and we'd practiced the switch and we rolled into unity and in the pits got the car jacked up on the trailer and the crew uh ready and uh, everyone had a, a job to do and uh, we proceeded to change the rear end and mount four slicks and get ready to race and people looking at us says well, what are you doing as we're changing we're in. well you don't have time to do that i think we do and yeah <laughs> and you did it
0: and we well, did it i have been spoiled with this amazing archive book of different articles print from print media over the years of your accomplishments over at spud speedway uh there's one i'm going to re- and whoever wrote these by the way, deserves a Pulitzer because they really sold the product. Imagine not knowing anything about this facility and never being to, at the racetrack. This, this type of riding makes you want to be at the racetrack and you're specifically involved with this one. So I want to know uh, what was going on when. Let me read this. 20 cars lined up for the big race of the afternoon. So they raced in the afternoon at Spud then. At the green flag, they roared away straight into an indie style crash on the first turn. Doesn't end there. Fans were on their feet as many of the drivers wheeled into the infield to avoid trouble while the fire equipment and ambulance streaked to the scene. The crowd was still on its feet as the red flag flashed, but so intent on the race were the drivers that nobody saw the flag and on they went for the rest of the 25 laps. So the red flag came out and you guys continued to race. <laughs> apparently uh, we laugh uh, about it now but uh, I, I have
1: trouble remembering yesterday let alone yeah. back 1970 but,
0: Bob uh, you won that race I did well there <laughs> uh, uh,
1: why wouldn't I remember that yeah so.
0: No, so that, uh, that was actually the 4th of July. Okay. I don't know exactly what year, but um, why would something like this happen? When, like, you know, you, you could you – was it paved at the time? It was paved, Yep. yeah. It was but nobody, probably,
1: could, nobody could see a thing then. Uh, I, I don't know why they would have said that the red f- light was on and, and mm. the red flag out. And uh, uh, there were cases where <laughs> the lights went out and mm. we continued racing. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> it was that uh, – that passion to compete the, the the get the bit in your teeth and, and go with uh, mm. up on the wheel whatever you want to call it and uh just the uh, passion to win winning was everything uh, in fact i had <laughs> lettered on the back of my car at one point it says winning isn't everything it's the only thing
0: yeah <laughs> what was it like racing with uh with chink manard chink was probably
1: the gentleman racing, the penultimate gentleman racer of the day and i always would gauge myself if i was outside of chink in second place going into the turn i knew he'd race me clean and i could go just as fast as he did and many races we'd race that way for lap after lap
0: you know neck and neck uh, did you ever um what was the worst crash that you were in worst crash was in practice i had a uh,
1: i had built a uh, a uh, real trick hood scoop and uh, i failed to to test it out and uh, what would happen is it would uh, the hood would collapse at speed and it jammed the throttle hmm. and uh, so uh, the throttle jammed about the flag stand going into one and uh, uh, all four wheels locked up uh, off hit the dirt bank rolled about three times hmm. and back on my wheels and Uh, And everybody figured the car was totaled. Were they worried about you? No, no, just the car. uh, (laughs) uh, I cracked a couple of ribs. uh,
0: Did you ever have to uh, sit out of a race because of injury? Never
1: did. Not because of an injury, maybe because of uh, mechanical issues. But my mentality was to go for the win. I I never raced points. I didn't care about points. I was there for
0: the win. Do you know how many wins that you have across over time? Or
1: They told me over 100. Uh, no. I had no idea it was that many uh, when they started compiling the wins between all the different tracks. And,
0: and in a fairly short amount of time, if you started in 68, yep. 68, 69... Uh, you know, when you fast forward down to '79, when you're here and you move down to Ellsworth, you have a, a young family, which is where Brett comes into the picture. What was it like growing up? Uh, growing up in a racing family? It was a lot of fun. That mm-hmm. was I always remember that. That's what
2: got you through the week. Was looking forward to the weekend to go to the racetrack. How was Dad on Monday? I guess it depends on how Sunday went. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Right. <Yes. laughs> He was always busy with work, so he was gone early Monday morning.
0: Hmm. I don't think we touched into that. I know that you said you had a, a bit of an engineering background. Did you follow through on that? Are you moving to the snap-on full-on? or It was always
1: doing something mechanical and right. uh, not necessarily engineering, but that was that's what I would study and to, to help perfect my my racing, to understand why a chassis worked and what spring rates were and what wheel rates were. And Where do you think that came from? Uh I think it was hereditary. Uh, I know my dad had fancy horses in the day, and he was always one of the best potato truck that there was, and mm. and he was an aircraft mechanic in the, in World War II. Uh, working on P-51s, P-38s, things like that. So Did they ever come watch you race? Once or twice. My mother, I think she came once and she was so nervous that she never came back. And mm-hmm. uh, they always followed the racing, but as far as being a spectator, no.
0: I can understand why your mom would be nervous if you're just ignoring the red flag <laughs> for 25 <laughs> laps. Coming into this episode, um, you know, I had some information on Bob, some information on Wyatt. I'm like, I don't know much about Brett's racing career. Why not? Uh, that was a very, very short-lived driving career. I don't want to say it skipped a generation because you certainly, as a president of Car for a long time, instrumental in, in why it's uh, racing. So it certainly, you know, you're, you, you've been involved, but never much as a driver. So early on, the passion was there,
2: mm. but then it uh, initially was a big financial burden, mm. was the, the first obstacle.
0: Yeah, well, Bob, when you first got into racing, how much were you spending per year? Per year, if it was five thousand dollars, it'd be a lot. Mm. Uh, Did you have sponsorship?
1: I did. I did. I had some good sponsors. Uh, They came to find me uh, because I was winning. Mm. Uh, uh, My first car uh, went up with no lettering, no numbers, and a a body shop came up and said, uh, "Hey, how'd you like to have a free paint job?" And and I'll I'll sponsor you for a paint job. And hey, that's great. Yeah. And then we had another gentleman who owned a construction company and. Uh, decided that uh, I'd be a good guy to carry his colors, and uh,
0: but by the time that you stopped racing, what year was it? Eighty nine. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you started in nineteen ninety as a, as a competitor. How much were you spending uh, every year on racing? Over you know two decades later, in eighty nine, yeah. Oh, probably twenty to twenty five thousand a year. Yeah. So there's the financial burden that comes into it as yeah. well. Uh, at that point.
2: My mother had had enough of racing, (laughs) so she was not a big supporter.
0: Are you sure about that? Because I'm looking through this all-encompassing book, and there is someone who is sitting on a number of hoods. Uh, Who is that? That'd be my mother. Oh, so mom, all of a sudden. Well, to be clear, I don't Hmm. think
2: she was worried about her son racing. It was the money to be spent on a race car. Hmm. Uh, Because the deal was, when he got done racing, she was promised a swimming pool. Oh, so any any racing funds that might have been around? We're, were not gonna So
0: be. I haven't had a full tour of the compound. Is there a swimming pool? There on is. This? There yeah. is. Yeah. When was that put in? Oh, probably about 1990. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we figured. So, uh, but when you were going to start racing, Brett, it was uh, it was 1990. And what was the climate like? What were you coming into?
2: Uh, So initially, it was a couple buddies that wanted to build a bomber car. Hmm.
0: So three of us went in. How much is he helping you out? A lot. Yeah, Yeah, We we
2: built our own roll cage, and all of it was done right up over the hill here.
0: Were you able to do as much with his race car as you were able to do in the early days by shaving off weight and just different engineering things? Exactly. So
1: That could be why it got uh, disqualified the
0: first race we went to. Oh, so you showed up, brand new guy. Right, yeah, yeah. And then, R- Rookie driver, never been on the track. Did but. you get a chance to go on the track that day? No. no. What happened? Uh,
2: the tech official at our local track,
0: Speedway, G- Speedway
2: 95,
0: mm-hmm. so based on reputation, I think,
2: Oh. thought perhaps the car might not be legal.
0: You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when you go through school and you have an older brother or older sibling and like that older brother set the table for you. And then all of a sudden, like you're you're, like five steps behind already on the end. But you were never illegal. No, we would push the envelope, Mm -hmm. and I was always of the
1: the thought process that if you give them ten things to look at and they take away five, you still
0: have five to the good. Yeah. So you get thrown out your first day, and do you come back right away? So uh, I was a little upset
2: with that situation. So so that was on a Saturday night, Mm -hmm. so we came home. And then we realized that Unity was racing on Sunday.
0: Wait a minute. Can I backtrack? What was wrong with the
2: car? So they deemed the intake manifold illegal, which it was a gray area. Uh, (laughs) It was actually what came on the car. It was nothing special,
0: the gray area. So you're in the gray area, and then you go to Unity the next day?
2: Yeah, and the car exactly the way it was. Very similar
1: rule books. Might have had a little more camshaft than was stalked too mm. so
0: you know one thing i've never asked uh and this is for anybody here uh because i know that well with unity not being active now they're and hopefully that corrects itself over time if it does it does and if it doesn't it doesn't part of this podcast is for documentation purposes so there's going to be generations moving forward potentially who have never raced on both unity and speedway 95 what is the difference between racing unity and speedway 95
2: well so i can't comment on that because I never was allowed on the track at ah
1: yes sorry right, Bob <laughs> well uh, Unity to me was the ultimate I mean that's where Ralph Nason Stan Meserve uh, Larry Pottle the uh, pete silva those are the guys i got to race with race against and a lot of the open comp 100 lap races and things like that mm. and it was a driver's track uh, all all four corners were a little different wasn't as rough back then i think as it was in its later years mm. as far as the track surface being rough and deteriorated there was a, a little technique a little you had to learn the groove and uh it was totally different from speedway 95
0: which was what
1: that was more more flat. I think more of a Oxfordy
0: type, kind of a circle. Yep. Yeah. 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 Wyatt, had you raced on both?
3: Yeah, my actual first Legends car race was at Unity. The winter of we practiced there while it was snowing. My first time in a Legends car was at Unity, and it was snowing a little bit. Wow. Um. Yep. Yeah. So I actually had the honor. We talked about how not many people know Dad's racing history, hmm. etc. But uh, my first ever Legends car race i was announced by marco thomas as oh. a as a third generation unity driver so marco knew of dad's career apparently but marco knows all marco knows all yeah. yep so uh yeah i got to race on unity a handful of times in a legends car but it was at the beginning of my was that the first time that why alexander yep. <laughs> out of ellsworth yeah. yep so you got great. it so, you got it he's so great Yep. so did you race on speedway 95 yep uh, i've raced at bangor quite a bit um legends car and then uh with the super late model and pastor um and then i ran a actually got to run a late model race there two years ago what would Um, you say the difference between the two in my mind they were more similar because you know so comparative to gramps time there the pavement was in similar condition Mm -hmm. so the top being the preferred lane and both being pretty rough but i honestly you know i only raced at unity half a dozen times and it was the very beginning stages of my legends car career so my awareness of the differences were probably a lot less as well right right
0: so obviously this family likes to play in the gray area what is the thing that you got away with that you're the most proud of now that the statue of limitations has passed (laughs) circle
1: track magazine did an article back in the 70s where they built a race car uh from scratch uh took a bare chevelle chassis and and build it up as a as a truck arm car and here's how you do this here's how you do that and and one thing they did was uh uh, i don't think they showed this in the article but uh ed howe uh the green hornet uh from wisconsin back in the day had this little trick where he would he would take the right lower control arm and put it on the left, the left lower control arm, and put it on the right. And what that accomplished was that it kind of moved the wheelbase forward on the car. So we had to maintain the stock wheelbase, but it didn't say where it had to be. Oh, so, 112
0: uh, inches, right?
1: As long as 112 inches, uh, that, that was good. So I built the car that way, and and the outcome was you could get more rear percentage, And back then, too, I was actually scaling cars, and nobody had a set of scales, or nobody paid attention to scaling the cars. So I probably had 60% left side and 51% rear, Wow! and uh, there was no scales in tack, and there was no minimum weight. Hmm. So uh, two people could take the car body off the chassis and set it aside to work on the car if you had to. Wow. And uh, so it was uh, just very very lightweight so i raced that for about a year before they finally caught on to what i had done the, the next year in the rule book there was a rule against that really? so
0: how thick did you make the rule book like how thick meaning did I they come would, up with a number of rules because of you probably
1: yeah i mean i my goal each year i would get the rule book and i would cover to cover read it and mm. in between the lines and
0: with that said do you think there are too many rules in racing now
1: in some cases, yes. I think mm. uh, rule books have been rules have been added and added and added and not edited, and so there are redundant rules. There are rules that contradict each other. Uh, in a lot of add a lot of tracks. Mm. And uh, back in the old days, uh, like the open comp races, it was fifty-five uh, percent left side, three thousand pounds, three hundred and fifty-five cubic inches. Right. Uh, that's it. That's it. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah today it's a lot different we build our cars today you go to a car builder and mm-hmm. uh, you know a uh, uh, dale shaw jeff taylor uh, 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 dean Clattenburg, and and you say hey i want a car and uh, mm-hmm. you write a check and uh, so they know what they can get away with and as far as most of it's safety mm-hmm. but there are a lot of rules that for one reason or another have been added that maybe have no purpose anymore
0: Off the top of your head, can you think of a a rule that doesn't apply today? Frame heights. Hmm. Totally ridiculous. We spend
1: more money to make a car meet a a 3.5 or 4-inch frame height. Uh, If it's not dragging on the track, there is no reason to have a frame height rule.
0: Why would they have that rule to begin with? It's just protect the track.
1: Uh, oh, okay. You know, so that you don't want a car digging up the asphalt. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas if, if we spend thousands of dollars on a set of shock absorbers to let the car get down where it is fast, uh, low center gravity, uh, seal it off for aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. And whereas without a frame height rule, you could get away with cheaper shocks. So that would save people a lot of money right there.
2: It excludes a lot of older cars from being able to compete, you might have a 15-year-old pro stock or late model that can't meet that rule and be competitive. So that keeps cars parked at home in the garage that otherwise could be competing.
0: That's so. a good answer. You know, you raced during such a uh, a golden time. There is a, a write-up in the paper that I'm looking at right here where it just basically lists all the winners of the various short tracks, and this is obviously pre-internet before everybody could find out everything at the very second. I'm just going to run down the list of people who won races on this particular weekend in New England. Mike Rowe, Joe Constantino, John Lazat. Apparently Mike Rowe won another race. (laughs) Uh, Bob Alexander, Harold Burgess, Dick Belisle, Harry Rice. What are your memories of racing during that? time probably
1: an underdog i didn't have quite the equipment that some of the guys did uh, it was homegrown it was adequate but uh, when i started racing at unity and in, in oxford and uh, you know i was probably a, a lucky to be a 10th place car back then and uh, so uh, you you had to kind of make it up in in driving at that point and uh, but to be able to to learn f- from watching dave Dion or somebody like that compete with as i said stan reserve and ralph nason and and ralphie was probably one of the toughest competitors you ever want to race against Uh, he had a three knock rule so if you were in front of him and and ralph was faster uh, the first knock was to say hey i'm I'm here here. the second knock was say hey get ready and if you didn't move over and let him go, the third knock, you were going. So,
0: so as someone who uh, had such an engineering background, and that was a key to your success, uh, what did you make of Nason's kit car?
1: That was the the ultimate. I mean, it had Larry Rathgood from from Chrysler Corporation designed that whole chassis, and you could—I still have a catalog. I have a mm-hmm. kit car catalog here, and you could go in and, and pick and choose whether you wanted a dirt car or an asphalt car. And you could buy the right torsion bars and and the cage and everything else to build yourself a state-of-the-art car, much like you would get today from Mm -hmm. a Jeff Taylor or other car. So that was like the
0: original distance racing or Dale Shaw race cars. Yeah. Did you ever want to buy one? Oh, I lusted over it. Yes.
1: (laughs) Big time. And I just never had the money. And Mm -hmm. Ralph had that uh, partner chainsaw deal where, I don't know if you heard that story, but he was uh his original sponsorship was i think he was given a quantity of chainsaws in order to get the money he had to sell those chainsaws (laughs) so uh that's how he got his money to go racing and he worked in a little basement shop in newberg uh it was probably eight foot by 24 feet and uh, i remember visiting him in the in the 70s and stopping in on the way to unity and and Picking up a chainsaw? In fact, Ralph gave me my first ride in a race car. No kidding. Uh, we, uh, When I was working with Eddie Gilman, uh, I don't recall if it was during practice or before the races. And uh, Ralph's, Ralph was managing the track at the time. It might have been 72, three. And uh, so Ralph says, come on, I'll give you a ride in the, in the car. So I jumped in he's in the driver's seat and i'm on the floor hanging onto the roll cage and we're going full tilt and so he's showing me the line and where to break and what to do so i credit ralph with any driving
0: yeah how many uh, races did you win at, at unity i honestly don't recall i
1: may, know. may or may not yes. have
0: a lot so during this time during the time that you're at unity you've won a bunch of races but um some of the cup stars would come to race in Central Main, like Richard Petty, Bobby Allison was another one. You had a run-in with him?
1: I did, actually. Bobby Allison was there. Jeff Bodine, I've raced against him. Uh, but this particular night uh, was when I had my Nova. That was way back, when, probably 81 or two. Bobby Allison came up as a star, uh, got appearance money for being there, and Ralph Nason had a believe it was a dylan camaro it was pretty fast coming out of turn four and i see bobby allison sideways on the track in a big cloud of smoke and it was, it was a days of thunder deal where you downshift a gear and you head for the smoke well mm-hmm. instead of staying in the infield bobby pulled back out on the track right oh. in front of me so i uh proceeded to t-bone that camaro right in the passenger's door and um, it took us both out of the race and uh, years later we got a chance to ask Bobby if he still remembered it and he did he did wow (laughs) he did so that's my claim to
0: fame I wrecked Bobby Allison that'll do it for stage number one with the Alexander family next time out Wyatt moves south moves back north and makes more than a few famous friends
3: some of the executives from Valvoline Valvoline is based out of Kentucky so for different things whether it was a Hendrick promotion um, an Alex Bowman deal um, Ray Evernham, they'd come to North Carolina and so they'd always get in contact with me we'd go to dinner and after one of those dinners they said hey do you want to go over to Ray Evernham's?" Uh, yeah I'm,
0: I got nothing who sure. says no to that yeah. right?
3: if you like what you hear tell a
0: friend it's the best thing you can do thank you so much for spreading the word of the Open Trailer Podcast talk to you next time